Good morning, church. I'm Susan David, and um, our text today is Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people hide a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Thank you, Susan. Good morning, folks. Uh, those who are neither traveling nor sick, good, uh, good to be here with you. And uh, those of us online with us this morning, it's always great to be worshiping with you as well. We are in multiple locations, but we are one church worshiping together. Uh, hey, so uh, a little news from the last couple weeks that's been lost in all the other news that's been happening in the last couple weeks. But our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, uh, just elected a new president. Uh, her name is Tammy Swanson Draheim. Um, I'm a big fan uh, for, I don't know, for maybe five or six years. I, I was working part-time with the denomination doing uh, stuff in the national office with church planning and, uh, and got to interact with Tammy a lot. She was the superintendent of our Midwest conference uh, during that time and is just a great leader. Uh, just leads with a lot of joy, a lot of positivity. Uh, she has a firm commitment to the word of God, to biblical justice, to racial righteousness, to church planning, to global ministry, kind of everything that we would hope that our president and the denomination would be about. And so uh, really stoked, really stoked for Tammy. So uh, there's a face to put with the name. Now you know this and uh, much rejoicing. So. Hey, so this morning, uh, we are in our series on the parables of Jesus, stories that Jesus told, uh, but today with kind of a 4th of July twist, because, you know, it is that time, even though we are not able to roast a pig after all, we've still got to celebrate the 4th in whatever way. So uh, we'll, we'll put some teaching to that end as well. So I, I wanted to kind of like snarkily name this message, even though I never name messages, I, I wanted to, to name it, How to Really Make America Great, as sort of a tongue-in-cheek way of saying, okay, let's, let's think about that. And even as, I'll pause here so everybody can groan, just the thought, ah, make, thank you. Um, but uh, we, of course, live in a nation where there are fiercely competing visions of what that means, of what it would look like to make America great. Uh, both your reds and your blues want this, right? The, the reds, of course, they have it as a slogan and it goes on a hat. That doesn't mean it's exclusively their vision. The blues, of course, want to make America great as well. Uh, and, you know, there's nuances within that. The conservatives would say we're making America great again. The progressives might say I'm not sure it was great in the first place. But both, both visions want to make America a place that is great. And what I'd love to do this morning is, if we can, to try to float a bit above the political fray in this and look at the bigger picture. What does it mean 
for us as believers in Christ. To be part of bringing God's vision of what a great nation might look like. What does it look like as men and women and children who are committed to following Jesus to bring to bear a vision that isn't the vision of the donkey nor the vision of the elephant, but the vision of the lamb? What God might want for this world, for this nation, for a people. And, and our, nation, our, uh, our vision for a nation is always going to fall short. Right? It's always going to be less than what God's is. At best, it will be a distortion of what God would have for us. So that's kind of the question that we want to explore this morning. It's a little spicy, uh, not maybe rah-rah, but um, understanding this, we're not talking about a theocracy. Uh, we're not talking about a, a thin layer of Christianity over a nationalism. We're talking about what does it look like in God's economy? What does it look like in the heart of God for a people to really flourish? And how can God's people live in whatever place they're placed in? We happen to be in America. Uh, but in whatever place, how do we live in such a way that we bring about the goodness that God would want? Uh, our reading this morning, the parable we're looking at, is really about that. And uh, the parables, grand, they're usually stories, but some of the parables like the one we're at this morning, are also metaphors or similes or word pictures. And this week, there's two metaphors that Jesus uses to describe what it looks like when God's people are engaged in their society in such a way that they are making that place great, that they are making it better. And these, these two pictures are salt and light. And we'll, uh, we'll summarize this passage that we're looking at this way this morning. It's this, that Jesus calls his followers to be both distinct from and engaged in the world. Distinct and engaged, both parts of this are very important for us. Uh, let's pray, and we'll dig into these scriptures together. Heavenly Father, uh, we are grateful and we, we're aware of it on a weekend like today where our country is celebrated. Uh, we are so grateful for the freedoms that we enjoy, for the goodness, for the flourishing, for the prosperity that, that we have in this country. And God, at the same time, uh, we pray that you would be at work and that you'd be using your people to bring about your vision more and more. Uh, God, give us eyes to see what you are doing, ears to hear what you are saying. Quicken our hearts to receive your word and to apply it well to our lives. And God, for us as a congregation, would you make us a people who indeed are living as salt and light in the world that you've placed us in. Uh, we ask you for this, God, trusting you in it. In Christ's name, amen. Distinct and engaged. Uh, let's start with distinct. So Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Salt and light. And these are two elements that when you introduce them into a context, they make things far better than they were already. You take salt and you take light, you put them into an environment and things get better than they 
were before. Uh, salt. So salt was hugely valuable in the ancient world, even used as currency. Uh, and salt, as we all know, adds flavor, right? This would be the aspect of salt we are most familiar with, past the salt, that's the thing we are thinking about. But also, salt is an important preservative. And particularly in, in the pre-modern world, in a world without refrigeration, you needed salt. It was a manner of survival for you to be able to preserve the food that you were eating and hoping to feed to your family, you needed to have salt, right? So you go out into the barnyard and you get yourself a goat and the family is going to eat the goat, yes? Uh, as soon as you slaughter that animal, the clock is ticking before it goes bad. And you don't want any to go to waste in the absence of refrigeration, what do you do? You rub salt into that meat. And the salt prevents decay. It causes that meat to be preserved. It keeps it as something that is usable for you, keeps it from spoiling. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. He looks at his followers and he says to them, this is one of your functions. You, as you are filled up with me, as you are being transformed into my likeness, your presence in the world is a preserving presence. It brings freshness. It prevents decay. It keeps things from spoiling. Uh, the scriptures teach us that we live in a world that is in decline. It is a world that is stained by sin, and there is a decay that is happening. Jesus says of his followers, you are the salt of the world. Your presence, your distinctness prevents that decay. And light. I don't know that there's anything that we take more for granted in an electrified world. Right? We have 24-7 electric lighting, daylight almost, whenever we want it. Uh, but you ever go camping? Maybe in, in the mountains or in the desert? I mean, somewhere remote where there is no light. It's, it, you've had this experience, right? It's, it's like you almost don't know how dark darkness can be until you're in that place. And there's no moon and there's no stars. And it, it's a scary, almost unnerving feeling. It, it's interesting. Um, so uh, in, in Mozambique, uh, we joke when we're there about everything being on African time, right? Which means you set a time for something, but then that thing kind of starts whenever it feels like starting. People just kind of roll in, and, you know, and then, and then you do the thing. Uh, so I was really surprised on one of my previous visits there when we came to about four o'clock in the afternoon, and, and John motions to me and says, okay, it's time to wrap it up. And I was like, okay, and I thought he meant in a very African sense, it's time to wrap it up, meaning whenever you feel like it, right? But about five minutes later, he's like, no, no, we're done. And he gets up and he dismisses everybody and everybody scatters. And I was like, what in the world is going on here? This isn't the way I thought things worked. And I was asking him about it and he says, oh, well, yeah, for things starting, we kind of start when we want. But everything ends before sundown. Because come sundown, you don't want to be walking home at night in the dark in Africa. 
And everyone gets this. Without light, everything, everything changes. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. You are the light of the world. They're not even talking electric light. This is the light of a candle, right? The light of a flame. Did you know this? On a, on a clear night, if you are in an elevated place and you have an unobstructed view, you can see the light of a single candle 30 miles away. In other words, you could be, if it was perfectly dark and perfectly clear, you could be standing on top of Palos Verdes and you could see somebody light a candle on top of the Matterhorn in Disneyland in Anaheim. Single light. Jesus, he goes on, he says, you, collectively, you are a city on a hill. A whole bunch of lights. And there's no way you're going to hide that. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. There is something distinct about salt and what it does. There's something distinct about light and what it does that makes the world around it better. And why is this? So, what is the point of God's people being distinct, we we might ask. Jesus here, he is tapping into a thread that begins in the Old Testament, runs through the Gospels, into the New Testament letters, and and even through Revelation. Uh, This idea that God's people are to be set apart, that God's people are to be distinct, that they aren't to live like the surrounding culture. And this distinctness, it's, it's not arbitrary. The thing that the scriptures teach us in this is that we are to be distinct, we are to be set apart because God is distinct. God is unlike the creation. And because he is distinct, he is set apart, or as it's often put in the scriptures, he is holy. That's what that means. Holy means set apart. He says, you as my people are to be holy as well. Right? Because God, God is not determined by his surroundings. God is not uh, contingent. God is ultimate reality. He is not judged by the moral compasses of others. God is the moral compass. And so God is distinct, and his people are to be as well. A couple of of examples. I want you to sort of see this in its larger biblical framework. So you get statements like these throughout the Old Testament. This one is from Leviticus 18, but it's, it's pretty standard. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. I am the Lord your God. He's proclaiming himself as being unique here. So do not act like the people in Egypt where you used to live, or like the people of Canaan where I am taking you. You must not imitate their way of life. You must obey all my regulations and be careful to obey my decrees, for I am the Lord your God. If you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find life through them. I am the Lord. Right, so you see what's going on here? So God is declaring to his people that following him brings with it a particular way of living. And he says it's going to be different. 
It's not going to be what it looked like in your past. It's not going to be what it was in Egypt. And the place where you're going, it's not going to be that either. It's going to be something that is unique to you as those who follow me. And note too, he doesn't pre present this as optional, right? This, this is a command. This comes with being God's people. Uh, and it comes with a promise. He says, if you live this way, you'll find life. Jesus says the same thing. He says, abundant life is what we find as we follow him. Now, fast forward to Jesus. A lot of statements like that in the Old Testament. We'll skip all those. Go to Jesus. Uh, John 17, he says, I have given them, he's speaking here of his followers, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Right, so this is Jesus. He's praying, and he's praying for those who would follow him. And he says, hey, his prayer is uh, in the midst of, of them following in a world that sometimes hates them, there's this prayer that they might be distinct from the world. Uh, the, the next verse, I don't have it on the slide for you, but the next one, interestingly, it says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So they're distinct. They aren't the same as the world, but also they're to remain engaged. We'll come back to that part. One from the New Testament letters, this is 1 Peter. He writes, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So, foreigners and exiles, he calls us as followers, those who don't quite fit in the world in which they live. More literally, we would call us today immigrants and refugees. He says, that is who you are as believers. You don't quite fit. You don't quite belong in the world in which you live. You are living in a way that is distinct. Uh, there, is, there is a temptation for us uh, that all believers have always faced, but I know we, we feel this in a particular way in 21st century America. Uh, Christians feel a lot more distinct now than they have perhaps in earlier generations. Given America's strong history of connection to Christianity, given the way that the Judeo-Christian ethic very much became the American ethic, and as we move further and further from that, this feeling of being distinct, this feeling of being a foreigner or an exile is becoming more acute. And it's difficult for us. We're not used to it. We don't have the same muscles for this that Christians in other parts of the world and other times and places have had. And so we're developing and we, we feel the temptation to fit, uh, to conform in ways that might compromise our distinctness as believers in Christ. And Jesus addresses this. What happens when we do just conform to society around us and we don't maintain the sense of being distinct? Uh, Jesus says this. Uh, again, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Jesus says if you lose the sense of being distinct, if you're no longer distinguishable from your neighbors who do not follow me, then you're no longer good to be that preserving force in the world. You're not capable of bringing that change that God envisions for the world around us. Uh, Brennan Manning put it this way. He says, the single greatest cause of atheism is Christians who profess Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny them by their lives. In other words, Christians who lose their saltiness, who are no longer distinct, but are now indistinguishable from the world around them. Uh, not only does this fail to prevent decay in the world, fail to make the world better, it actually has the opposite effect. It draws people away from God instead of towards them. So friends, hear this. In this distinctness, uh, we're, we're talking here uh, about not conforming to a vision that is lesser, a lesser vision of what will make the world a better place. Instead, we're talking about uh, allying ourselves to Jesus in a way that is strong and rich and powerful and that changes us and that changes the world around us as a result as well. This is different than the partial vision that we receive from our political leaders, even the best of political leaders. Uh, this is a different vision of what it takes to heal America, what it takes to usher in greater justice, truer morality, uh, a place that is safer for the vulnerable, a place that is equitable for both rich and poor, that's an exporter of good to the rest of the world. We want to be those who seek the vision of Jesus on this and not something less. Uh, consider by way of example, uh, the early church. And I, I find them fascinating for so many reasons, but there's a, a distinctly political overtone to this that I think is maybe useful for us as we think about our engagement as citizens. <clears throat> One of the most uh, celebrated historians of early Christianity is a man named Dr. Larry Hurtado. Uh, he teaches at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And his favorite area of inquiry is, is this question of how did this Christian sect, this tiny minority religion uh, that was, was small and persecuted and you know, by any historical standard should have come to nothing, how did they, in the course of three centuries, completely redefine the value system of the Greco-Roman world and become the dominant religious system in the empire? And Hurtado argues that it was their distinctives, not their commonalities, it was their distinctives that brought this about. In fact, the very features that caused those in the Greco-Roman world to take offense at the Christians, the things that caused them to be scorned and shunned, the things that caused riots and persecutions in the ancient world. He says, it's these very things that over time, as they, they displayed a different vision of how we might live in the world, were the things that caused Christianity to spread in the wild way that it did in those first three centuries. 
So Hurtado says there are five distinctive features that cause this kind of salt and light effect in the early church. Five distinctive features that cause the church to stand out against their cultural backdrop. So here they are. First, the church was multi-ethnic. The church from the very beginning valued diversity, equity, and inclusiveness. And in the Greco-Roman world, as well as the rest of the world, this was an utterly foreign concept. It was not practiced. It was not valued. Uh, most historians will tell you that the very first statement of racial equality that you find in the history of the world is in the Bible. It comes from St. Paul. Uh, and the church, uh, the church said God has a different vision for us. Not that we just stick to our own tribe, but the that we, as a people, reflect every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. Second, the church was socioeconomically diverse. The Greco-Roman world was a highly stratified society. Not only did you bridge gaps across racial lines, but you didn't through class lines either. And the church was very distinct in this, that it was made up of people of every social class as well as every ethnicity. Uh, and the church was well known for sacrificing what they had on behalf of those who didn't. In fact, if you as a Christian, if you were one who found that you had more, it was expected that you would be more generous so that those who had less could have enough also. Number three, the church was staunch in its resistance to abortion and infanticide. Uh, the Greco-Roman world was a hyper-pro-choice society, even more so than ours. Uh, parents had absolute right over the life and death of their children. Uh, this extended not just uh, throughout the entire course of pregnancy, but also in the weeks right after pregnancy. If you as a parent decided that this child was an undue burden, if you as a parent decided that this child was unwanted, then legally and in their society morally, that you could dispose of that child. The Christians were well known and well mocked for being a people who said, no, even the lives of children, including unborn children, matter. And we will be those who come alongside. They nurtured mothers. Uh, the community, the church helped raise children that were unwanted. And they... It wasn't entirely unheard of, but you could, you could say, in essence, that Christians developed adoption. Uh, it wasn't a value previous to this time. That's number three. Number four, the church was resolute that marriage and sexuality were between one man and one woman for life. Uh, the Greco-Roman world had a very broad sexual ethic, particularly if you were a man. Uh, Unfaithfulness was the norm. It wasn't even considered a moral issue. Uh, mistresses, concubines, prostitution, pederasty, same-sex relationships, uh, and more occasionally, but even same-sex marriage, all present in the Greco-Roman world. And the Christians said, no. God has called us to a very particular sexual ethic, and we're going to live that way. And then finally, number five, the church was nonviolent, both personally and politically. Uh, there was a concerted effort on behalf of Christians to practice nonviolence and, in fact, to 
practice kindness and love towards those who were their enemies. So you get all those? Now, why am I showing you all of these? Let's overlay those for a moment against our politics in the 21st century in America. These competing visions of how we're going to make America great. If you took those first two, those first two characteristics of the early church, commitment to a multi-ethnic life and commitment to caring for the poor, and you laid those over our politics today, it would sound an awful lot like democratic positions. If you take number three and number four, uh, the commitment to, uh, to the unborn and a commitment to a biblical sexual ethic, that sounds a lot more like Republican positions. Uh, number five, a commitment to nonviolence. You can argue with me on this, I won't be offended, but I would suggest that neither of our parties has a very robust commitment to that, particularly to not lashing out at enemies. Uh, I think, in fact, we're making an art form out of lashing out at those who oppose us, and that is a shame. But friends, here's the key. Understand, in the Greco-Roman world, these were not popular values. This was not good church marketing. This was not endearing to people. This earned the early Christians scorn. It was only after consistently and persistently living into these over time that the world around, one by one, bit by bit, began to say, that way of living makes a lot of sense. There's something beautiful and winsome about that. People began to look at the early church, and they were a light on a hill. And people were drawn towards that light. And as Jesus says in Matthew 5, and as Peter said in the passage we looked at with him, people follow the sunbeam to the sun, and they end up worshiping, glorifying God as a result of what they see in his people. They were distinct. And they were distinct in part, and I think this is one of the areas where we typically fail as 21st century Christians. They were distinct in part because they had a commitment to the whole of the word of God. Uh, they, they didn't, as we might be prone to do, look at that list of five and say, well, I'm gonna treat it like a buffet. I'll take the ones I want, I'll leave the ones I don't. Uh, there's nothing distinct about that. Any partisan in our society can do the exact same they were distinct because there was a radical commitment to take God as his, at his word and seek his Holy Spirit to empower us to live into ways that were decidedly uncomfortable in the ancient world. Now, before we, we move on to the other part of this, to the engaging, uh, someone I know is looking at this list and going, okay, I see how those divide up over our political parties today, but I still have to vote for one side or the other. What do I do with that? Uh, my answer to that is yes, please do. Vote for the side that you think will bring the most good to the most people. But be clear-eyed and honest about the failings as well as the strengths of that particular party, that particular ideology, and this is so hard for us today. But even as you do, let go of your self-righteous illusions that you are on the side of the angels and the other party is of the devil. 
It's not that simple. Every vision, other than that of Jesus, every vision of how to make our society great is going to fall short. We're working within a system that's broken. That's okay. But let's be clear and honest about where those failings are, and let's seek to be salt and light together. How do we do this? Uh, so how do we remain distinct in light of the pressure the world around exerts, pressing us into its mold, right? Do we all become monks, right? Or like start a commune, right? We could do that. Or, uh, or perhaps just create and then retreat into our own Christian subculture in the midst of the culture around us. You know, there, there was a group in Jesus' time that did that. They were called the Essenes. They were basically the monks of the day, highly committed to the word of God. They decided we can't pull this off living in the midst of society, so they bailed and started a community out in the desert. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't tell us to be like them. Now he tells us that we are to engage. We are to be distinct, but we are also to engage the world around us. Again, Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He says, you are salt. You are distinct and your strength comes from being distinct. But if you're salt, you have to mix in. Right? If you have salt and it's right here and the meat is right here, if there's even one centimeter between the salt and the meat, it has no effect whatsoever. The salt can be as salty as can be, but if it doesn't engage that meat, if it doesn't engage the world around us, we have no effect. And light, as powerful and as useful as light is, you've got to shine. It's only good if it shines out. It has to be put on a stand if it's going to light up the whole house. Uh, the light can't be put under a bowl or it's completely hidden and it doesn't give any light at all. Hide it under a bushel. No, it has to shine if it is going to have an effect on the world around us. And, and friends, understand, just as this biblical notion of being distinct, as this flows from the person of God, from his character, so does this matter of engagement. God is a God who is engaged. Uh, he is a God who is on mission. This is a God who saw us in our ruined state and was not content to leave us alone in that. A God who in the very first pages of scripture launches a rescue mission to come to us, to find us, to bring us out who gives his people a law that they might live in a way that is better and more distinct and less corrupt than the world around them. A God who, in our failure to keep that law, offers his son to come to us, to engage, and to give himself on a cross, to live the life that we couldn't live, and to die in our place, to take the penalty for that sin. This is the God 
who even as Jesus returns to heaven, gives us his Holy Spirit. He continues to engage us and he will come again. This is a God who is on mission. This is a God who is engaged. And we, friends, are engaged because God is engaged. We love the world because God loves the world. Let's go back to our example of the early church. What if, you know, these five distinctives I've shown you, what if uh, they only held these things as truths to be believed, but didn't do anything about them? Or if they just issued a statement, right? Press release, this is what we are about. But they did nothing with us, right? They had no social media, but what if they just posted? And were like, hey, here it is, I'm about this. But did nothing further. No engagement. And they, they wouldn't be fully salt, wouldn't be fully light. It wouldn't be the mission having its effect. But as we, we see in the scriptures and in early church history, they did. They were in. It wasn't just about saying that the church should be multi-ethnic. They did the hard work of living together, learning what it is to be people who are different yet come together as one. Uh, those who were here during our study in the book of Acts, right? This was on display in like every other chapter. The struggle to learn how do we live together as people who are so different. But they did it. In their care for the poor. You know, one of my, my favorite practices from the early church, uh, and of course you see that care for the poor in the book of Acts and the New Testament letters too. Uh, but there was a, a practice in the early church where people would fast. Uh, sometimes once or twice a week. And they would take the money they would have spent on food for themselves during that fast and use that to feed the poor. It wasn't just a statement. It was a way of living. They're engaged. Uh, when it came to the question of abortion and infanticide, it wasn't just a statement of values. They took in and they nurtured pregnant women. The community of faith would help to raise the children of single mothers. Uh, adoption became the norm. Uh, and, and the law changed as well. Uh, as this value began to spread through the Roman Empire, eventually the law collapsed under its own weight. Uh, the Christians didn't just say they had a standard for how they lived their lives sexually. They held each other to it. And uh, in terms of nonviolence, they didn't just say it was a good idea. They practiced active love for their enemies, even those who persecuted them. They were distinct from the world, but they were also engaged in the world, just like the one that they followed. Friends, is this a vision that you can get behind? Is, is this a picture? for what it might look like, with a little tweaking, what it might look like for us as 21st century people in a country that is desperately in need of healing, in a land that is more divided than it has been, some say, since the Civil War? Is this a vision for how you and I can be salt and light in the world? I want it. I hope you do too. As we think about how we might apply this in our lives, I want to um, 
I want to finish with three questions this morning and invite you really ask these in a way that's prayerful and a way that is, uh, is intentional. As we go to prayer this morning, as we go to communion, three questions. First one is this. Do I love God's vision more than any worldly vision? Do I love God's vision more? And I, I think if we're being really honest, a lot of us would have to just say, no, I don't. We would have to say that our hearts are wrapped around our particular preferred ideology, be it a Republican version or a Democratic version, that practically speaking, we'd have to say, I love that more. Friends, listen, we will not be salt, we will not be light if we cannot, by the grace of God, come to a place where we say, I love what God envisions for us more. The key to this, friends, the key to this is for us to be honest about those places where our preferred party's vision does not align with God's vision. And this comes as we ask that question, where is it written? We have to know and pursue and understand what God has revealed about himself. And bit by bit, inch by, by inch, say yes to it. Until our vision conforms to God's vision. Without that, we will not be salt and light. Do I love God's vision more than any particular worldly vision for what this place might be like? Number two, do I accept that living God's vision will come with pain? This is unavoidable. This is baked in, folks. Uh, Jesus, as we read earlier, Jesus says, I gave them, I gave my followers your word, and the world hated them. Uh, he goes on to say to his disciples, comforted them, they hated you because they hated me first. This is part of the package. Our distinctness will sometimes be met with joy, right up until the time that it isn't. Right? I think now about, um, I think one of the best things happening in our society is uh, the, the broad reaching concern over all the conflict, all the animosity between the races. And, uh, I think better than, than we ever have in times past. Uh, we as a nation are looking at that and we are concerned. This is one of those areas where biblically that says this is what we should be pursuing. And if we're pursuing that, then among most of your circles, you're going to find that that is well accepted. But let's rewind the clock 50 years. And if you are proclaiming that as the Christian ethic in a pre-civil rights era, how's that going to go down? It's going to come with a lot more pain. Here's the thing. You, know, you hear people talk a lot about being on the right side of history. I only know one way to be on the right side of history because we never know until it's in retrospect. The one surefire way that I know to be on the right side of history is to take God at his word, do our best to follow the scriptures, and take whatever pain may come. This is part of the package. If you embrace the whole of God's vision for society and not just the parts that you or your tribe prefers, then it's gonna hurt. 
you're going to find that you are not particularly popular with your lefty friends, and you are not particularly popular with your righty friends. You may get canceled by either side or maybe by both. And you have to ask, am I okay with that? Do I love God's vision more? Am I willing to accept the pain that might come with that? Right before this salt and light passage, the verses right before it, Jesus says this. He says, blessed are you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So friends, if you want to be salt and light, embrace your role as a foreigner in exile, as an immigrant and a refugee. Accept that discomfort will be part of the package. Stop trying to fit and instead determine to align yourself with God, even when it hurts. Third question. Third question, do I want to change the world or just get through it? Think before you answer. Do I want to change the world or just get through it? Think about it, because changing it presupposes those last two questions that we asked. So think it over, and then say yes. And then say yeah. I think that it is worth it. God does have incredible dreams for his people. He has incredible dreams for his followers. He does want to use you, you in particular, as an agent of change in his world. He wants you to be part of making the world better, you to be part of making the world a place that is more loving, that is more just, that is more truthful, that is filled with more grace, that is more beautiful, that is more equitable. That is God's will for you. Is it your will for you? It will come with a cost, but it will be worth it. Is that a vision that you are on board with going after? I hope so. Be salt and light. Embrace what God has for us, the beautiful purposes he holds for his people in this world. It'll be worth it. Let's pray.